Hi everyone, Ben Eisner here. Welcome to another episode of Knitted Heart, where I talk with endlessly curious masters of their craft about their passions, professions, and their shared hope to bring unity, reconciliation, and a reframing of public discourse through their work. My guest today is globally honored atmospheric scientist, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. In 2014, Hayhoe was awarded the American Geophysical Union's Climate Communication Prize and named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People and Foreign Policy's 100 Leading Global Thinkers. In 2015, Hayhoe was named one of Huffington Post's 20 Climate Champions. In 2017, she was named one of Fortune Magazine's World's Greatest Leaders. Dr. Hayhoe's awards and honors are too many to name here, so just know she's one respected individual, and I'm so honored to have her speak with me today about an issue that exacerbates countless disparities and humanitarian emergencies we're all facing together around the globe. So please allow me to introduce to you the pleasant, the passionate, and the remarkably engaging Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Hi, Dr. Hayhoe. Hello. So you're a climate scientist. So to set it up for me specifically, what a climate scientist is and what your current position and where you are applying your expertise and your passions right now. Well, that's an excellent question because a climate scientist is someone who studies some aspect of the earth's climate, but there aren't degrees in climate science. So people Mm -hmm. often get very confused because they say, well, your degree is in atmospheric science. So, you know, how do you say you're a climate scientist? Well, I am an atmospheric scientist, but I study the atmosphere part of the climate system. Other people might have a degree in oceanography. They study the ocean part of the climate system. Some people might have a degree in geosciences or even geology. They study the the lithosphere, which has an important role in the climate system. Other people might be ecologists or biologists. They study the biosphere and its contribution to the climate system. So climate scientists can come from many different areas. But what we share in common is the fact that we all study what makes our planet livable, which is our incredible climate system. So I specifically focus on human-caused climate change. I look at how climate has already changed in, in the recent past. And as a scientist, by recent past, we mean decades to centuries. Um, by distant past, we mean you know millennia to millions of years. So I study the observational record. We have thermometer records since the 1600s and much more you know, satellite records and other records since the 1900s and 1800s. And then I look to the future. And I ask, what difference do our choices today make? And it Mm. turns out they make all the difference in the world. Whether our civilization will survive in a workable, manageable form, whether our children's lives will look like our lives do today, depends on the choices that we make. And so that's what I try to communicate to people is that the biggest uncertainty when it comes to the future is us. Mm -hmm. And our choices matter today more than ever. More than ever. Yeah, well, I was immediately attracted to your very pointed focus and your passion for your message, what you have become an expert in. But I also am fascinated to know the backstory in terms of your childhood development in terms of finding this aha moment where you're like, oh, this is what I want to just spend the rest of my life studying. I'm obsessed with this. I mean, can you capture that in terms of your upbringing and where that spark was ignited for you? 
I, I definitely can. But the ironic thing is that when I decided to move into climate science, I didn't want to study it for the rest of my life. I thought, this is such an ur urgent problem. Surely we'll fix it soon. And I can go back to my true passion, astrophysics. Oh, astrophysics. Okay, <laughs> yes. now we need to back up a little bit. Something precipitated that. Yes. So now you have to tell me, I'm dying to know, why is astrophysics your thing if you can if i can say it that way what is absolutely it? or really why was it because sadly why it was it longer okay okay so <laughs> why was it yeah. i haven't been able to stay up to date enough on it to say that it is well so the interesting thing is um i grew up with the idea that science was the coolest most interesting most fun thing you could possibly study my dad was a science teacher and my grandmother although she didn't work outside the home she had a degree in science education and in fact, she named my dad after one of the pioneering female astronomers in Canada, Dr. Oh. Douglas. So my dad's name is Douglas. Love so it. one of my first memories um, as a child is going to the park at what felt like two in the morning. It was probably 10 o'clock at night <laughs> when you're four years old. Right. And learning how to find the Andromeda galaxy through binoculars. Whenever we went on a family trip, we had a station wagon, not just because we had three kids, but because we had to take the telescope with us. And sometimes even family vacations were planned around astronomical events, like when Halley's Comet came, my dad, you know, toted the whole family down to the Outer Banks in North Carolina, because that was the only place you could see it from, or the nearest place. So just the, the idea that using nothing more than our brains and the instruments that we can build on this relatively insignificant planet, we can study the far reaches of the universe is just absolutely mind-boggling. So when it came time for me to go to university, I looked at a couple of different options, but I pretty quickly settled on physics and astronomy because the fundamental laws that explain not only how things work here on earth, they explain how the entire universe works. Mm -hmm. And I was involved in research by second year. I was operating the telescope on the roof of the physics building, measuring variable stars. Then I got into looking at galaxy clustering around quasars. I loved what I did and it was so fascinating and so intriguing. You're always gonna discover something new. If you wanna discover something new, go into astronomy because there's always something new to find. And I thought that I was going to go to graduate school and that was what I was going to study. Mm. Thought. Thought. So what changed my mind? Well, um, in the Canadian educational system, you have to take a lot of breadth requirements and I needed another one to finish my degree. So I looked around and there was this brand new class on climate science that was just being offered for the first time over in the geography department. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. Why not take it? I had learned about climate change in school and I had always sort of mentally lumped it as so many of us do with environmental issues. Mm. So, you know, there's air pollution, deforestation, biodiversity loss, climate change environmentalists care about those issues and environmentalists try to fix them and the rest of us wish them well. Hmm. We might watch their documentary. We might support some of their organizations. We might say, good job. Thank you. Thanks for your hard work. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. if we don't see ourselves in a, as an environmentalist, that's not our business. That's not what hmm. we do. And I didn't. Hmm. So I took this class and I was completely shocked for two reasons. Um, first of all, I was shocked to learn that climate science, at least the part of it that we were studying, was the exact same physics I had been learning in my physics and astronomy classes. I don't know what I thought it was. Yeah, right. 
It was all it's like, wait, it's the same one, same physics. <laughs> yes. Well, the, the atmospheric part of it is pretty much all physics with a little bit of physical chemistry. Of course, once you get into the biological part, there's a lot more biology, but atmospheric science is pretty much physics. But what really changed my whole trajectory was when I realized that climate change is not only an environmental issue, it's an everything issue, literally everything. It affects the air that we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, the safety of our homes. It affects national security. It affects the economy. It affects everything to the point where to care about climate change, you only have to be one thing. And that one thing is a human living on planet earth. And we all, all share that. that. Yes. But, but what, really, what really sort of hit me, not just in the head, but in the heart, was when I learned that climate change is so profoundly unjust, mm. that it disproportionately affects the poorest people on the planet, the ones who have done the very least to contribute to the problem, the people who are already marginalized, who are already disadvantaged right here in the U.S., you mm -hmm. know, traditionally and historically Black neighborhoods or Hispanic neighborhoods, they are often the ones that see the most severe flooding and the most pollution. When we look at poor countries, climate change has already increased the economic gap between some of the poorest and richest countries in the world by as much as 25% since the 1960s. Wow. When you look at the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which are incredibly basic, things like no poverty, no hunger, <laughs> access to basic healthcare and education and clean water, there's no way we can achieve any of these goals if we leave climate change out of the picture because climate change is a threat multiplier. It takes all of the fault lines that run through our society and our civilization and amplifies or magnifies them. So that's when I thought to myself, hmm. climate change is so urgent, surely we'll fix it soon. I'll do everything I can to help fix it. And then I'll go back to astrophysics when we're done. Fascinating. And then I'm presuming that the deeper you got into it, you're like, wow, this issue is so prescient and so massive that I guess it's going to have to take all of my time. And then some, yes. And then some, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I did listen to your TED Talk and I was really intrigued because it's something that I've been working through a lot in terms of why in the world, when you talk, most people just write you up and be like, oh, you must be a Democrat. Why in the world does something that affects all of us have to be politicized and people have to presume that you're swinging one way or the other? Oh, well, I can, t well, in my TED talk, as you know, my answer to that is no, I'm Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's good. See, you have a, you have, you can opt out. That's good. You're Canadian. I can. Yeah, I love it. But, but we do have an answer to that. And the answer is that 99.9% .9 of the climate denial that I've encountered, and I've encountered thousands of cases of it, probably tens of thousands of cases, 99.9% .9 of it is solution aversion. In other words, a thermometer doesn't give us a different answer depending on how we vote. And the science of climate change was not politicized until when? Until the risks became imminent. In 1988, when pioneering NASA climate scientist Jim Hansen testified to Congress, um, Time Magazine put a burning planet in a greenhouse on the cover on their cover the year before. Um, the IPCC was formed, and the first IPCC report came out in 1990. Then there was the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, where all the countries in the world, including the U.S., agreed to prevent dangerous human interference with the climate system. So when action became imminent that's when it became politically polarized. Because, mm. and this is really horrifying, 90 corporations 
9-0. 90 corporations are responsible for two-thirds of heat-trapping gas emissions since the dawn of the industrial era. 90. Less than 90. 100. The CEOs of those companies would fit in three Greyhound buses, literally. And most of those companies are on the top 100, the ones that are still functional, those are still around. They're on the top 100 list of the richest companies in the world. And fixing climate change requires weaning ourselves off fossil fuels as soon as possible. So they did a very careful cost benefit analysis. They said, here's how much it would cost to completely change our business model. Here's how much it would cost to donate to key politicians, fund think tanks, sow disinformation, attack scientists, produce fake reports. One would cost huge amounts. The other would cost not that much. Let's go for option B. And so they did. And so they continue to. They continue to, to this day. And if you're interested in learning more about this, there is a fantastic documentary and a book called Merchants of Doubt. Mm. Great title. People who literally manufacture and sell doubt. Because here's the thing. You don't have to say it isn't real. All you have to say is we're not sure. And that's enough Mm. to delay action. So Merchants of Doubt, fantastic documentary, fantastic book. It names the names. It lists the people and the amounts of money and what they did. And it shows how not only did they muddy the waters, the big companies like Exxon and Shell and BP and Chevron, not only did they deliberately muddy the waters, not only did they introduce fake experts, not only did they attack climate scientists like me, I've actually had it happen to me personally, but they also did something else very insidious and they're still doing it today. From, from the concept of the ecological footprint, which is how much resources each of us use as a human living on this planet and how many planets we'd need if everybody lived like us, it was created by sustainability experts. From that concept of an ecological footprint, they extracted the carbon footprint part of it, which is how much carbon we produce. They applied it to individuals and BP popularized this in a in an advertising campaign in 20 in 2005. They applied it to the individuals and they turned around and they said, "You terrible people. You people who drive your cars, who use your electricity, who eat your meat, you're the ones who are responsible for this problem. What are you doing to fix it?" Wow doing it today. In fact, Shell paid to have a tweet promoted to my my Twitter thread just a couple of months ago that literally said, what are you doing to reduce your carbon footprint? Are you um, getting, you know, looking for clean energy? Are you driving a plug-in car? Are you doing this or that? And of course, I am doing all of the above because mm-hmm. nobody likes a hypocrite. You got to talk the talk and walk right. the walk, of course. Precisely. But what I said to them is this. I said, What I am doing is I am holding you accountable for more than 2% of global carbon emissions, more than the entire country of Canada. When you have a plan to address that, then I'm willing to talk about my personal carbon footprint. And when the CEO of Shell was talking to a group of CEOs in London two years ago about climate change, he said, you know, I tell my daughters, they shouldn't buy so many clothes because the fast fashion industry and those people who eat strawberries in winter, don't they realize the carbon footprint of what they're doing? Now, don't get me wrong. Yes, the fashion industry could do with the hard look at the way it uses energy and water and the unfair wage it pays people. And, and also, don't get me wrong, eating in season and eating local and eating more plants are all good things to do. But when a multinational corporation that's one of the 10 richest companies in the world responsible for 
more carbon emissions than the entire country of Canada, tries to blame people for eating strawberries. <laughs> it's like they're being the carbon footprint police. It's like, wait a second. It sounds like a bizarre, like, uh, reversal of kind of sca scapegoating something that they're not taking responsibility for what they're contributing to. Exactly. Fascinating. I, the, and it is really interesting because you know how much money they're spending on trying to spin their uh, environmental responsibility and consciousness of our common problem. Mm -hmm. I don't want to like put my dad on front street, but he has told me, he's like, yeah, in the seventies, they were freaking out that the sky is falling and we're the planet's burning up and they like put pumped all this like PR into this and then nothing happened. So why in the world should I be concerned today because I don't see any change in terms of what they were saying it didn't happen what do you say to I mean because I'm sure you get those face-offs <laughs> yes really okay every day <laughs> every day so what's your go-to response to those kinds of that kind of denial well, first of all, we, we as scientists, we already have answers to all the zombie arguments there are. Zombie argument, that's a good one. Yes, because yes, they never die. One. They just pop that's... right back up. Zombie argument, that's great. Okay, lay it on me. So it is so rare to hear a new one. Most of them okay. are fall into one of five categories. Basically, it's not happening, mm -hmm. or if it is, it's not humans. Mm -hmm. Or if it is happening and it's humans, it's not bad. You know, carbon dioxide mm -hmm. is plant food. Or it's too expensive to fix. Or it's too late. You scientists really should have warned us a long time ago, which we did. A U.S. president was formally warned about the dangers of climate change in 1965. That was Lyndon B. Johnson. So there's a really great website called skepticalscience.com. And it is the brainchild of a man called John Cook. And they have 198 zombie arguments with full answers to them. But here's the thing. Why did John create the website? He created the website because of his dad. You know, every time he'd go home to dinner, his dad would be like, well, John, there's more polar bears in the Arctic now than there ever have been. How could you say they're endangered because of climate change? Right. So based on what we just talked about, about solution aversion, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think that John creating the premier debunking of zombie myths website in the entire world, do you think that changed his dad's mind? Probably not. Correct. It did not change his dad's mind. And that is because here's what happens. Climate denial doesn't just spring into being fully formed. No, the first thing that comes along is political ideology and tribalism. We are more politically polarized today in the U.S. than we've been in decades. And people form their identity based on what their tribe thinks. So if your tribe says A, B, and C are true, and D, E, and F are false, you're going to be like, oh, well, I don't have time to look into it. I'll just trust my tribe, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, surely they've got smart people looking into it, so they must be right. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. Ouch. So first comes the tribalism and the political ideology. And then comes the solution aversion. I don't want to fix it because, and we're told stuff that's ridiculous. I mean, there was a elected Congresswoman on, on Twitter the other day telling people that Biden's climate plan meant that he was going to take away all your meat. That sounds extreme. Yeah. And I've had people say, oh, well, the only solution to climate change is abortion and I'm pro-life. So I'm never going to listen to, to anything about climate change. 
So the solution aversion comes yes. next when, of course, the solutions are good for us. They grow jobs, they clean up our air, they actually reduce the price of electricity. Solution aversion comes next. So first political identity, solution aversion, and then our human defense mechanisms kick in. Because most of us don't want to be a bad person. Most of us want to be a good person, right? And if I say there's a real problem that affects the poorest and most marginalized people in the world more than anybody else, but I don't want to fix it, that makes me a bad person. And I don't want to be that. So my brain, and a lot of this happens subconsciously, my brain starts to fish around to look for justification to say it's not real or it's not humans, or it's not bad, or it's too expensive, or poor people need fossil fuels. Don't take them away from them. Right. We fish around for excuses to make us a good person. And that's where the zombie arguments come in. They are a smoke screen or a window dressing for the real problem, which is solution aversion. So that explains why John's list of 198 zombie arguments didn't change his dad's mind. But there's a happy ending to the story. And um, I'm really excited because I finally got to, you know, sit down with John and get the full story out of him because I just finished writing a brand new book that's coming out in, in September. Ooh. Yes, it's called Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. Ooh, that's a great title. I can't take credit. My, edit, my editor came up with that title, but I, it gives me chills too. It's really good. So I got to sit down with John because I'd always heard Leo snippets and tidbits from John over the years. I was like, okay, John, tell me the whole story. So he's like, okay, well, I have an update for you. So a number of years ago, after he had done skeptical science, after he had gone back to university and gotten a PhD in cognitive psychology to understand denial, after he had become like the world leading expert in this topic, there was a big rebate on solar panels in the rural area of Australia where his dad lived. So John, knowing that his dad's identity is that of a fiscal conservative who likes to pinch his pennies, he said, hey, dad, you might want to check this out because you might be able to save a lot of money. And so his dad, who, of course, you know, wouldn't mind sticking it to the government either. <laughs> you know, right. Crunched the numbers, figured out it made sense, got his solar panels. And then there was like a buyback program. So if you produced more than you used, you, you, they would buy it back from you. Oh, wow. So pretty soon, like every month, he was sending John his bill. He was like, look how much money I made from my solar panels this month. Incredible. So this went on for about a year or two. And then they were, they were talking about something else, you know, two years later and sort of apropos of their discussion, his dad was like, oh yes, well, of course that's global warming. And I've always thought so. And John was like, what do you mean by that? And his, his dad had not only changed his mind and agreed that climate change was real and humans are responsible and that, you know, action makes sense. He had not only changed his mind, he had forgotten that he had ever denied it. Wow. And John He's said he forgot like he, was, he had already denied it. He, he forgot that, that he had ever denied it. Ever denied it. Ever. And so John said he felt like he was living in some surreal version of his, one of his own studies. Well, what changed his dad's mind? Remember what the problem is, solution aversion. Yeah. So now his dad had a solution that he could participate in uh-huh. that saved him money that was entirely consistent with his identity. In fact, it, it made him even more thrifty and even more financially conservative than he was before, right? Mm-hmm. And it meant that he was a good person. He was part of the oh solution. So now so that good. he was part of the solution and he was telling everybody else how great the solutions were, he had no problem with the problem itself. That is really beautiful. 
actually. That is, that's really beautiful, Dr. Hayhoe, because I have thought about this so much. I'm thinking this problem is so massive and I feel like we're just falling. Like we're like in an airplane that's like the engines have failed and we're like falling to our death and we are not acknowledging it. Mm-hmm. And, but I hear something like a story like that. And it's like, wait a second, yes. there's gotta be a way practically yes. for all of us to find that sweet spot and go, okay, I don't have to change the way I think in terms of my convictions personally, faith-wise, but there is a real way I can do this and not feel like I'm a bad person if I ignore it. So what does that look yes. like? What, like what, I, I know you talk about the big, 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 big thing is we just have to talk about it. And to me, that's the hardest part. How do we come to the table and actually talk about it when, you're, when we're talking about being such a polarized nation in America? What does that look like? What does that really, really look like? Well, you're exactly right. That was exactly what I was saying. We have to start the conversation with something we agree with someone on, with something we share with them, not something we disagree with them on. Right. If we begin by disagreeing, the conversation is nine times out of 10, not going to end well. Because you started off on the wrong foot, right? Like, you know, getting yeah. out of bed on the wrong side, so to speak. Right. But if we can start the conversation with a shared value, like John did with his dad over shared value of saving money, which was really mm-hmm. core to his dad's identity, Mm-hmm. Then, and if we can provide practical solutions that people can engage in that are consistent with who they already are and their values, that's when we can change people's minds. So I want to share a different story. And this is a brand new one because I just got this story last night. <laughs> oh, goody, goody, yes. goody. And it's a podcast story. So I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with this awesome woman called Tracy from Australia also. There's sort of an Australian theme here, but believe me, this works in the US too, and it works in Canada and the UK and beyond. Um, it's called Talk with Trace, and she um, she is an evangelical Christian like I am too. She is absolutely convinced that climate change is real and serious and we need to act, as many Christians already are today. But in the U.S. and in Australia and a little bit in Canada as well, um, faith has sort of been hijacked by politics to where people's tribal uh, identity is more from their politics than their faith, and they'll just put some religious icing on the cake, so to speak. Uh-huh. So that's why in the U.S. you see two-thirds of people who call themselves evangelicals rejecting the reality of climate change, even though the World Evangelical Alliance takes climate change so seriously that Hmm. their secretary general was an official delegate to the Paris Conference. Whoa. Yeah. It's all politics. So It's politics. That's what it is. Okay. So Tracy lives in Australia. And so she said, when we were talking, she's like, okay, can you just explain why this matters to Christians? Because my family is not on board with climate change. I am, but they're not. And I just cannot have any conversations with them. So, so we talked about it in the podcast and she's like, I really hope my mom is going to listen. So um, after the podcast, she messaged me and she said, I thought I'd just let you know that my evangelical conservative mom listened to our episode She's incredibly conflicted now, but it opened a good conversation between us. So thank you. Because what did we do? We talked about Christian values. We talked about, you know, what the Bible says, what we believe as Christians, how that relates to caring for the poor and all that. Mm -hmm. Well, then guess what? Last night, she sent me this awesome message. She said, you have genuinely changed my mother's views on climate. I'm in utter disbelief. (laughs) Whoa, that's huge. (laughs) That is encouraging. It is. And how do we do it? Not by overwhelming somebody with um, scientific facts, not by overwhelming 
them with guilt, which yeah. again is part of the tool that the fossil fuel industry actually uses to make us feel guilty, but by just saying, okay, here's who you are and mm -hmm. who you are is somebody who wants to be a good person. You have mm -hmm. all of these values and these morals that are good values and good morals. Well, here's how climate change directly connects to who you are and what you believe. In fact, caring about climate change is not only consistent with who you are, it makes you an even more genuine expression of wow. who you are and what you value and wow. what you want to be. So good. I love that. Have you found a lot of inroads into conversations with people utilizing the Bible to shed light on where we really stand today with regards to climate change? Um, I have, if that's something that's really important to them. I see. Um, for other people, it might not be. So um, I've had great conversations with people over being a mom. Mm -hmm. um, I'm part of a great organization called Science Moms that's about helping moms understand why climate change matters to our kids and what we can do to fix it. Mm -hmm. I've had, as I talk about in my TED Talk, I've had conversations with people over the values of the Rotary Club, if they're Rotarians. And I've even had conversations with people that started with knitting. And so I have to admit, I was slightly disappointed when I looked into your podcast because I got all excited. I was like, oh, a knitting podcast. Yes! Knitting. Oh, my gosh. And Because I heard through the grapevine, you're an amazing knitter. I do enjoy knitting and I've never been on a knitting podcast. So I thought this oh, was my shit. chance. Oh, yes. <laughs> sorry to disappoint you. Oh, my gosh. But I, I love your title and I love your logo because you got the oh, wool and you, you got the, the needles. Oh, thank you. Um, but what I want to emphasize, though, is something that your comment about my husband brought up, and that's that we often assume that people are either believers or deniers. Mm. But that's not the case. We actually mm. fall along a spectrum. And I think it's mm. really, really important to recognize this. Um, I like to use the spectrum called the Six Americas of Global Warming by the Yale Program on Climate Communication. They divide people into six different groups. And at one end, you have people who are alarmed and people who are concerned. And they actually make up the bulk of the population. Over 55% of us are already alarmed or concerned, but we often just aren't activated. We don't know what we're supposed to do about it. We don't know how to have a conversation about it without being depressed out of our minds or you know, yeah. getting in an argument with somebody. And so we're just sort of frozen and paralyzed because we just don't know how to move forward. So having a conversation with somebody who's concerned or, or alarmed is very valuable because a lot of people are just sort of stuck they have yeah. no sense of efficacy. They, they feel like, you know, nothing I do makes a difference. So why even bother? And there's so much we could do. And half the population falls into that category. So do not underestimate having a valuable conversation with people who are alarmed or concerned about what you can actually do. You know, mm -hmm. is there a community organization you could get involved in? Is there a group you could join? Um, could you talk to your, your school, your place of work, your place of worship, your city council person? You know, 99.9% .9 of elected officials in the U.S. are local or regional. They're not federal. And they're a lot more accessible for conversations about what we could do in our city, in our county, in our state. Talk to people at work about, could we be more efficient with our energy use? Could we reduce food waste? Could we, you know, transition to clean energy? There's so much we could do. So 55% roughly alarmed or concerned. Then we've got a big chunk that are cautious. And here's the thing. Cautious people often lead with their doubts. Mm. So cautious people are often mistaken for deniers because they lead with, well, isn't it just a natural cycle? Or I heard it's just volcanoes. But, mm. but they're asking that because that's what they heard from people they trust and they want to know, is that the case? Wow. And if you don't immediately shut them down, if you answer their questions respectfully and, and always pivot 
to how climate mm. change matters to them and what we can do to fix it. Don't just answer the science questions, always pivot mm. why it matters and how we can fix it. Then cautious people can get on board. So then, good. then there's a small group that's, that's disengaged. They've been living under a rock for the last 20 years. <laughs> and for them, the most important message is, hey, climate change is no longer distant. It is here where you live. It is happening now and it is affecting you no matter who you are. You might like hunting or fishing, it's affecting the bird and the, um, and the fish populations. You might be a parent, it's affecting your kid. You might be a national security buff. The military says it's the greatest threat we face. So disengage. Wow. Then at the very end, we have 12% doubtful and 8% dismissive. Doubtfuls are pretty hard nuts to crack. It might take mm -hmm. multiple conversations, maybe even years. Mm -hmm. But dismissives, the eight percenters, are almost impossible to crack. Why? No matter what. Why? No matter what. Because their identity is so built on rejecting climate change, you would almost have to, it's almost like the mental equivalent of asking them to cut off a body part to wow. lose that part of themselves. And here's the sad thing. We, most of us know at least one dismissive. I, I have an uncle, <laughs> John, you know, John had a dad and his dad's mind did change, but it wasn't because of anything John said to him about the science. Mm. With the dismissive, I honestly think that even an angel from God with brand new tablets of stone that said <laughs> global warming is real and foot high letters of flame would not change their minds. And so why would I? But so often when we say, oh, have a conversation about climate change, our mind jumps to the dismissive in our life. And I would say, no, they're 8% of the population. We need to have conversations with the 92%. That's where we can really move the dial. We don't have to have the 8% on board. We need the 92% 92. on board. And the good news is we can have conversations with them. That's really good. I love that. Is there anything scientifically that you take just absolute joy in with regard to our planet being made to heal itself if we give it the chance. Well, I love that you brought this up because yes, as, as the COVID lockdown swept around the world last spring, we saw these incredible photos of New Delhi, you know, the before and after, like the orange choking smog and then the clear yeah. blue skies. And then yeah. we saw that with LA too. And then in Venice, when the boat stopped running, they stopped churning up all the sediments so you could actually see in the water. And so that's why I'm so excited about a category of climate solutions called nature-based solutions. So, so often we talk about technological solutions and we need those too. Like what? Like, um, first of all, being more efficient. We waste 67% of the energy that we burn in this country. We waste it. We could cut our carbon emissions 50% just through efficiency alone. And we'd save money. Yeah, I know you just kind of sighed. It's like, yes, oh no God. brainer. Yeah, come on, right. Then we need clean sources of energy. So solar panels, wind turbines, geothermal energy, all of those kind of high-tech ways of getting energy, we need those. But we also need to work with nature instead of against nature. And so I'm going to be moving into a new position as chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy, which is the biggest conservation organization in the world. They're in over Whoa. 70 countries around the world. And That's I love great. what they do because they work with people to not only conserve our natural environment, but they also work on solutions that put carbon back in the soil and back in the biosphere where we want it. Because wow. the problem we have is it's not that carbon is bad. Carbon is, we're, we're all carbon-based life forms. Carbon is essential to life on this planet. The problem is we have an imbalance. We've been digging out and burning 
coal and gas and oil for so long, which is transferring carbon from what we call the lithosphere, the solid earth. It's transferring carbon from the solid earth into the atmosphere way faster than it would ever happen naturally. So we have an imbalance where we have too much carbon in the atmosphere and not enough carbon in other places. So for example, in the soil, carbon is like miracle grow on steroids. One ag professor told me, he wow. said, you know, for marginal or average soils, if you can put carbon back in the soil in terms of, you know, organic material, you can burn agricultural waste and then you plow it back into the soil. It is the most incredible natural fertilizer in the world. And it's putting carbon back in the soil that would otherwise be in the atmosphere. When we, um, when we protect ecosystems so they can continue to grow, every year that they grow, they suck enormous amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere. When we replace or restore degraded ecosystems through tree planting and things like that, there's new organisms that are sucking more carbon out of the atmosphere. And not only are they helping us with our carbon problem, helping to restore the balance, but they also help with air pollution. They clean up our air, they provide habitat. More habitat means less risk of zoonosis, which of course is where viruses jump from animal to human populations like happened with COVID. And healthy ecosystems provide better living for people who live off the natural resources in their environment, which are traditionally and typically in low income areas and low income countries. So nature-based solutions really are a win-win. They clean up our water, they clean up our air, they draw down the carbon, they provide habitat for animals and plants, they conserve and protect biodiversity, and they help with local human populations as well. So I just love the fact that we can work with the earth rather than against it. That's so good. I love it. And you know what? I mean, sorry to disappoint you thinking this was a knitting podcast, but to the, the heart behind even the name Knitted Heart is... Yeah the fact that all of us are sharing, we're all made of the same thing. And we all share these crises like our changing climate. And so when I hear you talk about nature-based solutions and how we can contribute to encourage and inspire those nature-based solutions, I feel like, wait a second, that's the great equalizer. If we can set aside our disagreements on politics or how we vote or whatever else, and can come to the common denominator that we all share, that we're all facing, I still am trying to get to the practicality of what that looks like in my house and my neighbor's house and the people who might be doubtful, but might be willing to take a step closer to acknowledging it. What are practical, practical steps? I know we can talk about it, and what are the practical steps that we can employ in our every single day lives that we might not think make a difference, but really, really do? Mm -hmm. Well, that question is basically what my entire book is about. So I'm setting it up. <laughs> I will try to summarize it for you since we don't have five hours. <laughs> I can't wait. What I started off with this question. Um, what changes the world and how can I and you and each of us as individuals contribute? Because I know that even if everybody who was alarmed and concerned about climate change did everything to reduce their carbon footprint that they could in this country, because we're embedded in a system that's based on fossil fuels, all of our combined efforts as individuals would only add up to about 10% of national emissions. It's wow. nowhere near what's needed to fix the problem. So each of us doing what we can in our homes is not enough. 
How does change happen though? Because change has happened. You know, 200 years ago, it used to be acceptable to own other human beings as slaves. And it is not acceptable anymore. Um, you know, 150 years ago, it used to be acceptable to say women couldn't vote and they shouldn't be educated because their poor tiny brains would overheat. That has changed, <laughs> thankfully. Thank God. Um, you know, 70 years ago or so, it used to be acceptable to say that if you were black, you could not drink from the same water fountain as someone who was white or sit in the same part of the bus. And thankfully Sorry. that has changed. Now, yeah. you know, don't get me wrong. We have a long way still to go with gender equity and racial equity and all of those things. But the world has changed and it's changed because of one simple thing, social norms. Mm. And that's a sciencey sounding phrase for simply what we believe is the right thing to do and what we believe other people think is the right thing to do. Because again, getting back to, we all want to be good people. And mm -hmm. part of what we, the strategy we use to figure out what's good, right? Because good is of course relevant or, or, or relative. We have our antenna up all the time, listening to and looking at what other people are doing and saying, is this acceptable or not? Do they do mm. this? Do they like it? Is it good or not? So we mm. are constantly subconsciously taking in and filtering information to tell us what is good and what is not, what is acceptable and what isn't. Mm -hmm. So if we want to change social norms and people have deliberately set out to change social norms, that's how slavery ended. That's how, you know, women got the vote. That's how civil rights were finally enforced. It isn't because a president or a CEO or a prime minister decided that's the way the world had to be. It's because individual people decided, no, this is unacceptable. So, so good. what did they do? They used their voice to talk about it. They used their voice to talk to other people. They found like-minded people and banded together in groups because in community we're more powerful than we are individually. They okay. met up with other groups. They got together and made bigger groups. And what did they talk about? Of course, they talked about what they did themselves. People always talk about the irony of Thomas Jefferson speaking against slavery when he owned slaves himself. Right. That does not go down well. No. No. So a lot of early abolitionists, they freed slaves if they had them. They talked to other people about freeing their slaves. They talked about policies. They talked about economics. They talked about security. They talked about morality and ethics and what was right. They talked about theology. They used their voice to talk the talk and walk the walk. And eventually they changed the world. Wow. So that's why I'm absolutely convinced that the most important thing we can do individually is use our voice to advocate for change in every sphere that we're in, because we're not just an island off by ourselves. Each of us is embedded. We're embedded yeah. in a family. We're embedded in a social group of friends and connections. We're embedded typically in a workplace with colleagues. We might be embedded again in a place of worship or a social organization or club or community. Um, we might be connected to you know, our kids' school or whatever it is, using our voice. And part of what we use our voice to talk about is what we're doing ourselves, of course, right? Yeah. So yeah, I adopt so two new local carbon habits every year and I talk to people about how I cut my food waste and how I love my solar panels and which plant-based meat I prefer and things like that. But yeah, I, I also talk about what churches are doing, what the military is doing, what businesses are doing, what um, states and cities are doing. I talk about what people are doing because that changes our sense of efficacy. Remember how a while back in our conversation, I talked about how we have no sense of efficacy. We feel like I could do everything I could and it would make no difference. Right. But when we realize that individual people are doing amazing things, we were like, oh, well, if they did that, maybe I could do this. 
They're not so different than me. They're not, you know, some CEO of a company. They're not some major politician or celebrity. They're just an ordinary person. They did this. Maybe I could too. And so that's what gets the rock rolling down the boulder, rolling down the hill. And the more hands we have on it, the faster it goes. Yes, that's really good. I love that. Yeah, because I think maybe even my question, it only kind of covered that 10% of what we can do. And then at first, when I heard you say that, it's like, oh, that's out of our hands. So we have to wait for like the big corporations to change their minds to fix the other 90. But the parallel you just gave to just even the story of how slaves were freed mm-hmm. and how socially taking action really does expand out into greater society and it does bring change. Is that right? Is that, a, is that, yeah. can I stand by that? Yes, you absolutely can. There's, there's literally published science on it as well, as well as just opinion. Um, and because the thing is, is a system is made up of people, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. with big corporations, they've got people who work for them. And why does you know, Microsoft have a carbon neutral goal? It's because people who worked at Microsoft, as well as probably their shareholders too, said, we need to be better. Mm. Why, you know, why does the city of Houston have, have a climate action plan when they're home to the biggest oil and gas industries in, in Texas? It's because people in the city of Houston used their voices for years. Finally, a mayor got elected, but it wasn't just the mayor. He was standing on you know, the foundation of hundreds and thousands of people in Houston who had said, we need a climate plan. And then the mayor is elected and he's like, I'm gonna enact the climate plan, not just because I'm one person, but because I've got all these people who've built the community that realize we need it. So whenever you look at significant action anywhere, anytime, you see that there's individual people embedded in that. And, And just like the archetypal story for me is this. So, you know, about four or five years ago, there was a young teenager who struggled with severe anxiety related to climate change. So she convinced her family to stop flying, to um, change their diet, to reduce their energy consumption. They did everything they could to live in a low carbon, environmentally sustainable way. If that is all they had done, if that's all she had done, nobody would know her name. But she did one more thing. She took a piece of white cardboard and she painted a few words on that piece of white cardboard, school strike for climate, Fridays for future. She went and she sat outside a building, which happened to be the Swedish parliament. And today everybody knows her name and her name is Greta. And we know her name, not because she said she would never fly again, but we know her name because she used her voice to advocate for change. Oh, Greta Thunberg took one step to start the process and the conversation. (laughs) And it really is in our own hands. Honestly, Dr. Hayhoe, before I talk to you today, people have heard me and my family and friends just talk about the fact we're doomed. No matter how much we talk about change, climate change and the the crisis we're facing, not enough people care, not enough people will actually take action. There are plenty of passionate people out there that are taking action, but not enough. We're doomed but I'm starting to feel like I need to change my tune a little bit because I am a glass half full type of person in most things, Mm -hmm. but I've just viewed this crisis literally as something that's so monstrous Mm -hmm. that I just have lived with this inevitability in my mind. Well, we're doomed. I mean, I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to compost. I don't eat eat meat anymore. And I don't tell people that just so that I can hold my trophy up and say, I'm being good. I'm just silently making my contribution, but I feel like it's a drop in the bucket. 
But when you talk about it, that drop gets multiplied and it connects to all the other drops. And eventually the drops turn into a full bucket and eventually they turn into Niagara Falls. So good. What you said reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from uh, Christiana Figueres, who, of course, she is the Costa Rican politician who is basically the architect of the Paris Agreement. She shepherded all of those arguing, quarreling <laughs> countries to an actual agreement in 2015 about what was dangerous climate change and what would they do. And so Christiana wrote a book afterwards, and it is the, you really need to read it. It is the book that we all need. It's called, it called? it's called The Future We Choose, The Stubborn Optimist Guide to the Climate Crisis. And in this book, she gives us what we're lacking. We are lacking a positive vision of the future. We have the apocalypse that we're trying to avoid. And then of course, people who have solution aversion, they have the apocalypse they're trying to avoid because they're like, oh, well, fixing climate change will destroy the economy and take away my car and my stake and my personal liberties and put China and the United Nations in charge of the world, probably with the antichrist behind them. I actually right. hear that. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, so, that's so predictable. We've, yeah, we've got these two competing view, visions of the of the apocalypse, right? But uh -huh. what we're missing is we're missing the vision of the better future because hope is the small but non-zero chance of something better. That's what hope is. Ooh. And if we so don't good. know what that looks like, how are we going to know what we're fighting for? We're, we can't just fight against something. We have to fight for something. That's the way we as humans are built is to fight for something. Wow. So in her book, The Future We Choose, she lays out a vision of what our lives as individuals could look like in 2030 if we tackle climate change. How much more healthy, how much happier, how much safer they would be. You read the book and you're like, yes, I want this life. And here's how she ends. She ends with this. We realized, speaking of us in 2030, when we see how good our, our, our world is, we realized that we were only ever as doomed as we believed ourselves to be. Wow, that is so powerful. I'm super encouraged having this conversation. I always want to get to the heart of the heart of the heart of like, what is it that is actually going to move the needle? This is super encouraging for me, Dr. Heho. Do you know how I heard about you? Firefox, somehow they know what to post on those articles to click on, want to know more. There was some write-up about you and I was like, oh my gosh, I just love her passion. I love her commitment to what she is wanting to communicate and discover and to bring people together. I have to talk to her and I'm so glad I did. <laughs> I'm really glad. I'm so glad. That is hilarious because you know what? I use Firefox and it does the same thing to me. The exact same thing to me. <laughs> but, Amazing. But the articles that I get are, are not on climate change, <laughs> which is really funny. I get, um, let's see, what do I have? I have um, information on history. I have a lot of historical articles. And I have a lot of, oh, I actually have a lot of articles on psychology, probably because I've been doing a lot of reading on psychology on why do people do this or why do they think that or um, what happens to your brain when you do this? I have a lot of articles on that popping up here too. Interesting. I want to talk to people who are passionately contributing towards a vision of a brighter, more equitable future and mm -hmm. healing the world. And that's why I was so attracted to what you were, you are saying. And that's why I had to talk to you. That's exactly what this is about. It's, it's not about overcoming climate change per se. It's about healing the world. It's about a better future. And climate change stands in our way of that.
Whoa. Yes. So as we wrap up, do you have something to kind of some parting words that you have been invigorated by lately that you're like, oh man, I've, I, if I could just say this one thing and if this could be the, the one golden nugget that I want to deliver and, and hand off to my, my children and my children's children and anyone else who has the capacity or the desire to hear it, can you distill that into some bite-sized piece for us? Um, let me give it a try. <laughs> okay. Um, I think what I would say right now is probably that re revelation that hit me so long ago, which is simply that climate change is an everything issue. So no matter who you are, where you live, how old you are, what culture you come from, what experience you have, what things you care about or don't care about, what you believe or don't believe, no matter who you are, you are already the perfect person to care about climate change. Because whatever yeah. you already care about, whatever that is, is being affected by climate change. So you don't have to change who you are in any way because you already do care about climate change. If you don't think you do, it's just because you haven't connected the dots. So that's part one. But part two is what we were just talking about. And that is that we all want a better future. Every single one of us wants a world where you can see blue sky and you can drink clean water and you can have healthy food and um, a great life and a safe place to live. And you're surrounded by a community of friends and family who you love. Everybody wants a better life. And today climate change is standing between us and that better life for every single one of us on this planet. And so that is why as the title of my book says, it's up to all of us to save ourselves. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, is there somewhere I can send people to read more and go down their own rabbit holes in terms of what you have to offer in your offerings? Oh, yes. <laughs> there, there's a lot. <laughs> so my website is just my name, Catherine Hayhoe. It's probably a great place to start. I, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. I've got a YouTube series called Global Weirding that Ooh. tackles many frequently asked questions, including some of the ones we talked about today. And my upcoming book, again, is already on sale. You can't, it won't get delivered yet, but it's on sale. It's called Saving Us. And as you mentioned, my TED Talk is also available. So those are all great resources that you can listen to, you can watch, or you can read. Amazing. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, thank you so much for your time today. It means so much to me. And this was so enlightening and, and encouraging to me. And so if it didn't impact anyone else who's going to hear this, it really impacted me. So well, thank, thank you. you. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. See Bye. ya. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you found this conversation worth sharing, I encourage you to pass it on to anyone who comes to mind. To learn more about Dr. Hayhoe's career and her ongoing work, visit katherinehayhoe.com. That's H-A-Y-H-O-E. Also, you can visit my website, knittedheart.com, to hear previous episodes, investigate further resources, and hear more about my ongoing work as a filmmaker. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and share with your friends. This is the best way to spread the good word, which allows me to constantly broaden my reach with future episodes. Peace to you until then, and bye-bye for now.